welcome to The Sharp End. I'm Reha Paracha, Sustainable Multi-Asset Investment Specialist for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. As usual, I'm joined by David Coombs, Head of Multi-Asset Investments. Good morning. And Will McIntosh-White, Fund Manager for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. Morning. So in this month's episode, David, Will and I will be discussing the volatility we've seen in equity and bond markets as we grapple with simultaneous recessionary and inflationary risks, the recent ESG shakeup and debates surrounding the role of nuclear power, gas and defence in portfolios, and what this means for the future of ESG. And finally, which consumer discretionary companies we believe can continue to perform well during a market slowdown. Before we get on with the show though, here's Craig with the usual T's and C's to keep us on the straight and narrow. This podcast is intended for professional investors and must not be shared with a non-professional audience. Any views and opinions are those of the investment manager, and coverage of any assets must be taken into context of the constitution of the fund and in no way reflect investment recommendations. Past performance should not be seen as an indication of future performance. Now, before we get into the topics, I just wanted to let you all know our setup is a little bit different today, as David, like most of the country it seems, actually got COVID last week. So that means he's dialing in from home, And if you hear him coughing or sneezing or anything, that's why. So moving on to the first topic. As we have spoken about during previous episodes, we've been thinking about the risk of stagflation, that is slow growth alongside higher prices for some time. And it seems like now, so is the market. But it doesn't really know what to do about it. The Fed is growing more hawkish with some members wanting rates above 3% this year to curb higher inflation. But at the same time, the Treasury yield curve has inverted, which means the gap between yields on 10 and 2-year bonds recently turned negative, a traditional early warning of a downturn. Yet stocks are surprisingly strong and bonds have taken a beat down. So David, how are you making sense of all this and what it means for portfolios? Well, in between coughing and spluttering, <laughs> great difficulty to be quite honest with you. Being at home for the last week, and having not much else to do in isolation, but keep an eye on these sorts of things. I'm, I, frankly, I'm not much sure I'm much the wiser. I don't think I can remember when views have been so extreme, I guess. And I think that's probably why we're seeing huge volatility in almost all asset classes. We, we've talked a little bit about that before, but just take, for example, people's perception of where US interest rates are going. Let's, let's start there. It's not unusual to hear people talk about seven to eight interest rate rises now this year, which you know would have seemed unbelievable literally only three or four months ago. Now, whether that's seven or eight rises of 25 basis points or three or four or 50, you know, discuss, it doesn't really matter. Obviously, you end up in the same place. You're getting some real hawkish comments from certain members of the Open Market Committee. And on the other hand, you know, one could make a case for maybe one or only two buoyant straight rises. And if you look at the, I think you just mentioned the twos, tens inverting and pointing towards recession, you might make an argument saying, well, perhaps we shouldn't raise interest rates at all. And, you know, I, I find myself really struggling with this. And I guess so is the bond market, right? Which is why you're seeing US yield tenure at 275. I think overnight I'm right in saying that Chinese tenure yields have now gone lower than US, which is phenomenal. I mean, we are seeing some unbelievable 
shifts here in terms of perception of risk. And it doesn't feel right to me. I'm not quite sure what, what, <laughs> what right is, but something's got to give. And I don't think we can put the blame on the war in Ukraine necessarily. I mean, certainly the impact on energy prices and, and food prices, which we discussed in the last podcast, are there. But nevertheless, what we're seeing with, with zero COVID policies in China, you know, I think we, we, we saw some actual protests in China over the weekend. We are in a very, very strange position. And I think it's very difficult to call it from here. I mean, on the rate side, I, you know, I think we're definitely going to get more than one or two. And people out there talking about 12, I think, is the latest count. I'm, so, I'm sure someone will beat that this week. I still think the Fed, as you say, is keen to talk tough, to sort of keep the froth out of equity markets, to make it look like they are doing something and tackling inflation, albeit, you know, how much they can, what they can actually control right now over what is causing inflation, I think is limited to a certain extent. And they want to get rates up to a level away from zero, right? We've been at zero for too long. I think arguably, you know, there is an argument that they are slightly behind the curve and, and they're trying to get back ahead of that. So I think we're going to see some hikes to start with. And then I think that will taper off. I th personally don't think they will follow through with that because I think growth is slowing. I mean, that's the one thing where I think there's a level of agreement within markets, if you like, or amongst commentators that global growth is going to slow this year because of the inflationary impact that it's having. And then it's now a question, of course, of how much. I've seen plenty of people suggesting that Europe is going into a recession. We, of course, have talked about that and talked about the UK potentially going into recession. I don't think the US goes into recession. I think growth slows, but the US is just such a resilient economy. So I think the yield curve has inverted, but it's an indicator. I don't think it's always been perfect, a perfect indicator. And there's an amount of time between which yield curves invert and the economy goes into recession. And that can be quite a long time. Uh, yeah, I struggle. With, I have to say, I do struggle with this. You know, I'm always nervous about economists and their leading indicators because the they're always right until they're wrong. Right? So I, I don't get too caught up in the twos, tens, and all the excitement around that. But I do, I do struggle with this narrative that we need to get interest rates up to 3%, say, in the States or the UK, against the economic backdrop that we're seeing. I just, they just don't make sense to me. You know, We've talked about the UK before and, and, and the rise in national insurance recently and the tax raising that's going on in the UK. Just talk about China earlier. And, are we going to see supply chain blockages again because of what's going on in China? Is the Chinese economy going to slow down? Wouldn't bet against it, right? And so everything I'm seeing is pointing to a significant growth slowdown, even anecdotally. And it's not just one or two people. Tens of thousands of people are worried about their spending power right now. Yeah, you've got to look at consumer confidence numbers. Again, indicators, indicators, indicators. But for once, I, I kind of believe them. I, I do think consumers are very worried because they are filling their cars up or their oil tanks or the gas bills are going through. So I, I just, I really struggle with this growth is going to be okay and we're into a Goldilocks scenario. And the corporate bond market is kind of agreeing with me, which we, you know, we've talked about guilt yields, but let's just quickly talk about the credit market. I mean, I bought some credit for Stratt Income last week, first time, and I sold some FTSE 100 tracker. 
That's the first switch from equities to credit I can recall me making in years. Now, I'm probably far too early with that. But what's the IBOX off this year? Five, six percent? So the corporate bond markets are, are feeling the pain. OK, you've got some yield rises flowing through from sovereigns. The spreads must be widening as well. So that would normally make me think that if credit is selling off, that's usually quite a good indicator of poor, of poor sentiment and confidence, I would have said. So paint me a positive scenario on growth, please, because I'm really struggling. There we are. I'll throw that to you. Come on. <laughs> I think that you, you, you're right. I mean, a lot of what you're painting about the inflationary pressures are, to a certain extent, global. I think they're felt in some places worse than others. My other half was complaining about the price of a train ticket this morning. But as you say, those inflationary pressures are across the board. I was talking to my, my brother in Egypt and the food price inflation they're seeing out there is, is huge. And of course, that makes up a massive amount of their spend. It's about 40%, I think. And that'll be, again, across the board for you know, developing markets. So I do, I do think you know, the global growth picture is slowing. I think the US can ride it out. Consumers are in a very strong position. You know, they've built up big cash balances. I mean, I know some of the fiscal policy tailwinds with all the checks that got sent out through the pandemic have dried up. So that is no longer there. But those cash balances do remain to a certain extent. And I think the US consumer, it's very difficult to get on top of the US consumer. Uh, now, of course, you know, you talk about rates and the impact that has, and we know that feeds through in the UK straight into mortgage rates. In the US, you know, mortgage rates have risen to nearly four and a half. Now, that is the bit that I'm keeping an eye on that does worry me a little bit because when we started to get to those kind of levels in 2018, you started to see the US housing market start to struggle. And I do think it, that needs to ease because it's been very, very strong for a very long time. Can I throw something into the mix here? Because you hear economists talk about savings rates all the time. And when I was younger, particularly, I find this quite extraordinary because I never had any savings and a lot of my friends didn't have any savings. And what are these savings rates in real terms, in terms of the mass kind of economy? Because what are savings really? Are, are they a month's spare cash for people? Is it two weeks? Is it one week? Is it, is it savings? Is it, is it kind of the just-in-case money? Is it, is it genuinely savings to spend on white goods or big holidays? I mean, I get very nervous about the way these economic terms are thrown around and in the real world, what does that really look and feel like? And is, is this talk of this huge watch of savings because of COVID just a false comfort? It might not be, but what if, what, what if it is? I'm not convinced there's this wall of cash that's coming in to buy sofas and is it not just being eaten up in everyday life? I mean, the Coombs Paella Index has gone through the roof. We, the Marks and Spencer Paella has gone through £10 for the first time, having <laughs> gone from about £7 only a year ago. That's 30%. I hope that feeds more than one. <laughs> <laughs> well, two, but even so, <laughs> that's a lot of money for a bit of rice. Seriously, food prices are, are going up much more than headline inflation numbers. And, and, and these are... Yeah, these are right. Okay, you don't have to buy a paella for box suspenders. That's yeah, that's first wheel problem. I get it, but it does reflect what's going on. And let's also be honest about this: most people buy fast, easy, ready meal type food these days. You know, people aren't going back to buying raw vegetables. So we just again need to try and kind of divorce ourselves from some of the th the macroeconomic theory and actually look at what's going on in the real world. And I'm not convinced there's a huge amount of growth coming down the pipes. 
I still think, I mean, I've never liked the alphabet soup of recovery shapes, but I was always taken with the K-shaped recovery. And I do think there's an element of truth yeah. within that, that those cash balances are heavily weighted to those on the higher incomes. And I was reading that the lower income have started to get through those cash balances. So I think it's going to come down to thinking about stocks. We're going to talk about stocks that are more insulated from a slowdown in the consumer space a bit later. Yeah, I mean, if I think about what we're doing right now, given these views, we may not totally agree with each other on recession, but we probably totally agree with each other that growth is going to be at best mediocre. And you know, where do you want to be positioned both in bonds and equities going into this kind of uncertainty and with such a wide range of outcomes potentially? And it's going to be sound really boring, but quality, quality, quality. And when I mean quality, I mean quality in terms of liquidity, quality in terms of genuine visibility through profits and earnings and cash, actually. Because what you really want in a, such a volatile economic picture, you want companies to have flexibility. Flexibility, whether that's in putting prices up, whether it's in terms of flexibility around their labor, whether it's flexibility around adapting to different consumer demands. I think you want businesses that are probably asset light, probably debt light, actually, in your equity portfolio and with products and services that are fairly inelastic. That's kind of where I feel we ought to be in equities and fixed income. I am starting to dabble a little bit at the fringes of the credit markets. I think there is some value starting to appear for the first time, probably I can think of in years, I mean, if not five years or more, actually. And maybe there's a bit of value starting to appear in sovereign markets as well. Now, if inflation stays at 7%, I'm going to look a bit of a twit. So moving on to our second topic, a number of macro shocks we've seen over the last quarter have had knock-on effects for ESG and what it actually means. The war in Ukraine started a new debate on whether defence companies belong in ESG funds. The recent energy crisis seems to be leading to a nuclear power and gas comeback. And rampant inflation has hit growthier stocks, which ESG or sustainable names tend to be hard, leading to underperformance of some funds labelled as ESG or sustainable. So there's a lot to unpick here. But Will, what are your thoughts on where all of this leaves ESG as a way to invest now? You know, do you think the ESG landscape has changed for good or? No, I don't actually. I mean, ESG has been massively in the spotlight for, for the last few years. And it was to a certain extent one way traffic. And I think now there is a bit more debate and it's really just highlighting the fact that this space is unfortunately poorly defined. And that's something we've, we've tried to address and talked to clients a lot about it. And we've even produced some literature in, in the hope that we can sort of shape some definitions because at the moment everything's just falling under this one big banner of ESG. Um, and as you rightly point out, you've now got nuclear power being included in the EU taxonomy. People talking about defence. I mean, that's been the real controversial one. And for me, I don't think this is should defence stocks now find their way into sustainable funds like the type that we run. I don't think that's the right point about what is happening right now. But I think there are some people who have perhaps traditional investors, those who you know do consider ESG, uh, ESG risk, and they've kind of avoided perhaps the defence stocks um, on those type of grounds. And I think maybe now the defence stocks are not seen by, shall I say, almost normal investors as, as pariahs anymore. And so perhaps some people will be coming into the market to buy defence stocks that perhaps wouldn't have done, but for the events that have happened this year. 
So I think that's what I think that's one to park because you know those flows may or may not impact the defence space, um, but a defence space given all of that spend that is going to happen are probably going to be quite well supported in terms of their top line. Where is G this year? Is, is I mean, I've always hated the phrase "perfect storm." It's my it's my most hated phrase, I think. But we're pretty close uh, when you think about the first quarter that sort of sustainable type portfolios have encountered. And they've had the oil price go through the roof, and really the only way to protect yourself has been to own oil majors or miners, because commodities have clearly gone up as well. Because of the events in Ukraine, the defence stocks have gone through the roof on all of these areas that sustainable funds, or you know, those so-called ESG funds have moved away from. And then you've had this massive rotation from growth into value, and a lot of the more sustainable champions tend to be growthier, and then you've had the valuation issue. Looking last year, we talked about valuation in the growth space, but I think it applied to those ESG champions as well. I think that there was a little bit too much froth in some of these names. I think not everyone was necessarily looking at the fundamentals. And I think there was a slight detachment of valuations from the fundamentals of some of these businesses. To a certain extent, some of that has washed out, but I think not all. And you only need to look at what's happening in the renewable space. You've had a big boost to the renewable space because of this move away from fossil fuels and move away from Russian fossil fuels. Uh, but I do think people need to just be wary in that space and recognise that the long-term growth outlook has definitely improved, um, but the short to medium-term outlook for margins doesn't necessarily look fantastic because, as, as we've talked before, your names like wind turbine companies, you know, the cost of steel's going up, cost of concrete's going up. So their margins are going to be squeezed. I do think there's also this word ethics or ethical. What we were seeing, certainly up until middle of last year, was people merging the words green, ethical, sustainable, ESG, not really understanding what ESG meant. And it was this wishy-washy, catch-all kind of fluffy definitions that some regulators were trying to get their handle on, frankly failing. We have the EU taxonomy trying to get a handle on it, frankly failing. Now we're trying to fudge it with nuclear. If something was properly defined, you wouldn't even have to have these questions. That is the biggest problem here. And I think it's incumbent upon the industry to sort that out like quickly. And we're not going to sort that out in this podcast today. People can read what we've we've written before and, and know where we stand on this and go away and have a look at our, our documentation if you're interested. I think there was far too much hyperbole, both positively and negatively, for sectors contained within ESG or, or, or outside. And people lost focus on what was really important in both sides of the equation. And that's ultimately we invest in businesses to hopefully make a return, right? Now, Different mandates will have different restrictions and people will have different values in how they invest. But ultimately, what the last 12 months or certainly the last nine months have proven is that it's still about the fundamentals. If you're a business with a margin of 2 to 3% and growth of 4 or 5%, you shouldn't be valued the same level as a company that's growing at 25%. But that's what we saw. And we saw the emergence of this ESG risk factor. And we also saw risk systems trying to take into account this ESG risk factor when actually the ESG wasn't even adequately defined. It was the classic case of garbage in, garbage out. And I, I, I hope that what we've now seen is this reality check. Yeah, I think what we've seen is more people wanting to kind of 
sit down and have more of a kind of grown-up conversation about a lot of these issues and it's stuff that we've spoken about before you know if you're investing in wind turbines you're going to be investing in cement and steel and you know shipping you know if you're investing in semiconductor companies you're going to you know they need commodities so i think people are kind of starting to realize that it's not that clear cut to get to where we want to be by 2030 and so now people are thinking about you know how will the transition actually happen in reality rather than just kind of chasing these renewable energy stocks that were kind of darlings but they didn't really understand how they'll get there you know it's the same with kind of hydrogen which we've you know also spoken about is kind of sitting down and thinking you know is this realistic is this an investment opportunity or is it just a kind of story right now i think the final thing you talked about it the fact that some investors have come out of this space and i think there were people investing in this space for the wrong reasons or looking at the performance track record of esg stocks which done very well probably because there was a lot of money chasing a lot of these assets. And I think you now get back and away from the discussion over whether this sort of style of investing is going to outperform or not. And into, you know, the fact that if you're going to invest along this style, it should be because you want to invest aligned with your values, not because you're chasing performance. That's absolutely right. And I, I felt brave enough uh, when I was up in Scotland a couple of weeks ago to say to, to in, in public, you know, that actually the biggest renewable companies in the UK in 10 years' time might be Shell and BP. Now, they might be awful investments because the transition to, the, to renewables might be so capitally intensive that they won't be able to make it work economically. On the other hand, it might be a completely new renewable company that's the biggest, but also might not make any money. In fact, renewables might be an awful investment or they might be a brilliant investment. And the point is, you just need to take the same approach to this space as you do any other. You should never invest on a hope move away from renewables into some of the alternative foods, for example. You look what happened to Beyond Meat share price. Look what happened to Oatly. Classic examples of hot money chasing new disruptive type of businesses. But not all disruption works. Everyone looks for, let's invest in the next disruptors. Well, okay, there's an element of sense to that, I guess. You've got to look at Amazon, right? But not all disruptors disrupt, and some disruptors disrupt and don't make any money, right? Not all budget airlines have made money, for example. So I, I do think people are more willing to have a nuanced conversation. I think there is an understanding of compromise, and I think that's healthy. I think it, it means you can have a better quality discussion. And I think people realize it is about a transition, and that despite a few eccentrics out there right now, we're not going to get there in six months. So I, I actually think investing in sustainable type businesses now is far more attractive than it was two years ago, because I think that oomph was gone. Oomph being a technical macroeconomic term, obviously. <laughs> so with recessionary fears on the rise, often consumer discretionary companies that are selling non-essential goods and services can suffer. But that doesn't mean we should be writing off the whole sector. As consumer habits evolve, often companies, which on the face of it seem to be discretionary, can actually almost turn into staples. We've seen this with a number of household names we hold, such as the likes of Ulta Beauty and Nike, as well as Costco. So David, why do you believe companies such as Ulta have done surprisingly well this year so far? Well, as someone who thinks that using Clarins moisturiser on a daily basis is actually compulsory, 
as I get older and I want to make sure I don't get one of those middle-aged noses. You know, I don't see some of these skincare products as discretionary, which shocked the Ulta head of AR when we met them recently, you recall, when she uh, made this astonishing claim that she didn't think I'd be interested in, in beauty products. I mean, how sexist. Anyway, this is really complicated. In when is a consumer good a staple and when is it when is it not? And I think let's start with beauty. It does feel from talking to consumers that particularly in the skincare part of the beauty industry, that is probably a staple and certain beauty products are. Within beauty, you've got various strata as well, such as luxury. Again, if you look at luxury goods, if you just come out of beauty for a second and you talk about LVMH, Chanel, Burberry, some of these other luxury consumer names, they do tend to be more resilient during the cycle. And this kind of talks a little bit back to what Will was talking with the K recovery, right? In that those in the the top bit of the K who've got so much money, inflation has less impact. And so I do think luxury beauty products as well are probably less likely to see that 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 fall off. Now the other element of luxury has been travel. You know, it's a big channel for perfumes and and, and, and other beauty products. And, and that's clearly a, has been a, a channel that's been hit for six of the last two years through the pandemic and, and it's only was starting to recover. Obviously with Chinese are still not not really uh, traveling outside of China. So that particular international channel hasn't fully recovered yet. So there is some upside there which will be counter-cyclical in a way to what's going on in the broader economy. And Ultra, of course, is a specialty. It's a classic consumer stock that we like, which, which dovetails the quality of the product, but with the customer experience. Because I don't know, I've not been in an Ultra beauty store. I don't know if you two have, but for what I understand, you can get every, you, know, you have your hair done, you can have yeah. makeup done. It's a day out, it's an event. And Nike store is similar. And so I do think Companies like Ulta, uh, Nike, and some of the luxury goods companies are in a better place to navigate the economic environment we were talking about a little bit earlier. I think what surprised me slightly, though, maybe you want to pick up on this, Will, is Costco. Because Costco, we wouldn't put in any of those particular elements. I mean, Costco, I guess, didn't surprise me so much. I think it shows that consumer is becoming more cost-conscious by the day. Now, they are seeing strong traffic, very strong results. And I think as you move into this more difficult environment where costs are going up and growth is slowing, the, the consumer becomes more discerning and works out how they want to spend their cash in the most effective way. And Costco takes that box, you know, is a way of continuing to buy the quality produce that you want, but you just go in and you know that you don't have the massive choice that you want, but you can buy in bulk, you have their membership, which is great for that business, by the way. They have sort of 80, 90% renewal rate, so it acts as something like an annuity. So they have better results. And I think that those are the areas where the consumer can be, you can invest in a business that is consumer-facing and can be more resilient. And you mentioned, you know, the beauty space, the LVMH. I mean, in the beauty space, you got the lipstick index was the classic one, where you talked about people moving away from expensive apparel and moving into affordable luxury, almost treating yourself to these things. And the other element of this is, of course, we have hardly really mentioned COVID at all. But I think consumers have for a long time been at home buying goods and they are starting to go out more. And of course, they're wearing masks less um, because, of course, that's where makeup was hit quite badly and lipstick in particular because people out wearing masks. And so, you know, I think a lot of eyes 
there was a lot of spend on eyes, <laughs> which, you know, I wasn't surprised by. Yeah, I think during COVID as well, there was a huge emphasis in terms of beauty on the kind of online channels. And that kind of really became really big, especially with things like social media. You know, the focus was all on kind of that self-care, that skincare element of it. Um, and that kind of grew quite rapidly. And it almost, you know, they can hold on to those customers now. We've kind of come out of COVID because they'll continue to invest in that space that maybe they weren't so aware of before. But because everyone was locked down, it was kind of, you know, the only thing they could really do. And then as we'll mention, now we've opened up, you've got both elements, you've got the, the beauty coming back as well. And the kind of the, the partnerships with stores like Target, um, where people can now go and, and buy that in person. I think that's right. And I, th I think that behaviour has changed. And, and I think as you say, they've got those customers. And I don't think with the pandemic, hopefully, moving into certainly some kind of end game, uh, you hope, certainly in the West. Um, I think those customers uh, have changed, they've changed their habits. And, and I don't think that's something that just rolls off. It's interesting that both Costco and Ulta, what they have in common, they both have their membership schemes and those offers that they tie those members into. We talked before, haven't we, about services of subscription, but almost that that's part of that tie-in, but very different, say, to Dollar Shave Club, which hasn't really worked, as, as you and found out. But with Ulta and Costco, again, it does seem to me that, that and it's a horrible term that I really detest, but this omni-channel, you bring together that membership, that on-premise experience, together be able to buy the products both online and offline. It's actually quite powerful because you're encompassing all parts of that retail chain. And Ulta absolutely does that. And they're accessible stores because they're literally in almost every big town or city they don't have towns in America, do they? Cities. And they're out of towns. They've got parking. So they make it easy for the consumer. They're not stuck on an old-fashioned high street where you can't park nearby or, or pop in to see your mates. So I think these companies we're talking about, Nike, Costco, Ulta, are going to succeed despite that economic backdrop. Now, I have to be the bearer of bad news, or for some of you, it might actually be good news, and share that the multi-asset mixtape segment is no longer. Now, as much as I loved hearing the team's music recommendations, I thought it was time to be out with the old and in with the new. So instead, we'll be ending the episodes with a new segment called Any Other Business, or AOB. AOB is basically just five minutes of all of us ranting about something which has really wound us up this month. Kind of like a bit of a free therapy session, really. And it, it can be about markets or it could be about something completely random that we've seen on the internet, which we want to share because it's just really kind of annoying. So, Will, I'm going to start with you, as I'm sure there's a few things that have really rubbed you up the wrong way this month. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> David doesn't need an excuse to rant. But anyway, so I toyed for this one and decided I wouldn't talk about Elon Musk because um, I want to keep the lawyers at bay. Uh, so I did think I'd just talk about Rishi Sunak because it's been very interesting to see what's going on in that space. And I, I'm a big believer that politicians' families should have a right to privacy. But I also think that when your wife is a non-dom status, which has meant that she's had a loophole, which has meant she's been available to avoid paying huge amount of taxes for many years. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that falls within the scope of family privacy. And I think there's other bits and pieces coming out now about Rishi holding a green card. Um, and I suspect this is probably the end of his chances of becoming prime minister, actually. Pretty quick fall from grace, actually. Yeah. 
there you have Boris, who at one point we thought was out and walking the streets of Ukraine. He looks like he is hanging about for a lot longer than many of us thought. Okay, David, over to you. Wow, I mean, pretty controversial. I mean, I was going to talk about paellas, but I mean, you, you <laughs> up the game. I guess mine is more to do with treatment of minorities. And in this case, us that are afflicted by needing to be gluten-free, <laughs> right? I was on the Great Northern Azumi trade. I think that's how it's pronounced. Bizarre. And I was in first class, as you would expect. Right. And they came around with <laughs> the like. food choice and the gluten-free option was also the vegan option, which is exactly what happens on British Airways and all, almost any other <laughs> transport system that I go on. And if, in fact, it has been known, and I, I need to whisper this carefully, in certain <laughs> corporate places of eating where anyone who's gluten-free suddenly turns into a falafel lover or dare I say it, avocado lover. And as anyone who's listened to this podcast before me knows, that avocado is the devil's spawn. <laughs> it is a disgrace. And I, and I want to say here and now that for those fellow celiac gluten-free people like me, it's time for a change. <laughs> Rahab, what about you? So being of the kind of slightly younger generation myself, a millennial. Harsh. Although harsh. I, I, hate, I hate that term. <laughs> so what annoyed me this month is... We see this a lot, but it also kind of reared its head on Twitter again, was all these kind of articles and tweets coming out about young people and how the reason we can't afford to buy a house or afford nice things is because we've got a gym membership and because we go out and have Starbucks every day. And if we cancel both those things, suddenly we could be, you know, owning five properties and flying first class everywhere, which, you know, is obviously ridiculous. And some of it is clickbait as usual. But I genuinely think that there's some people who just think that the younger generations have it really easy and we should stop complaining about, you know, the energy crisis and the cost of living crisis and just give up our Netflix subscriptions, um, which, you know, is definitely not the case. And I think, you know, we definitely have valid concerns that should be heard. As a fellow millennial, I uh, <laughs> feel your pain. David? <laughs> I would just say that in the 1970s, we only had three TV channels. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's it from us. Thank you for joining. And we'd love for you to join again for next month's episode of The Sharp End. If you didn't have a chance to listen last time, please do go back and give it a go. In March, we discussed the different long and short-term implications of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine and how we have attempted to navigate these in our portfolios. You can subscribe to the podcast on all major podcasting platforms and some other smaller ones as well. Also, please don't forget to hit the subscribe or follow button and feel free to leave us a rating and review as well. If you'd like to hear more about the Rathburn multi-asset funds, please do speak to your usual Rathburn sales contact or visit the website at www.rathburnfunds.com. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>